Oh, I was pulling through at Culver's, which is one of my favorite fast food restaurants, but I don't go there too much because it's a little bit pricier. If you've ever been to Culver's, you know that they will have you pay at the window. They'll give you a number and then they have you go park onto the side. Well, I thought I'd hit the jackpot that day because when I paid for my food, they just gave me my food at the window and everybody else was waiting on theirs. And so I thought, okay, this is pretty nice. And so I just was pulling on through and a lady in her van didn't see me as I was pulling through and she backed up and hit the front of my car. Now that's really the first fender bender I'd ever been in before. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do we sort this out and insurance and figuring everything out with her. And so we pulled over and we did all of that and I ended up getting the bumper fixed and getting a call from my insurance agent a couple months later. And she said, okay, I'm going to start a recorder and you're going to tell me exactly what happened word for word in that accident and know that your word is going to be compared to her word on what took place in that accident. So I'm like, okay, there's no pressure there, right? You know? And so I had to word for word, give what happened in that specific accident. And then they talked to the Culver's people and everything else. And I ended up getting insurance money and things like that because I was found not at fault. I have a lot of other faults. I wasn't at fault in that situation. The point is, though, is that it can be challenging sometimes to give a testimony. A testimony is a report about what happened. I can remember even leading up to that conversation, overthinking it. Okay, what do I say? How do I make everything sound? You know, was I really at fault? I don't want to try to lie to this person. And then I thought, you just have to tell them what happened. You have to give them a report as to what took place. As a Christian, we all have a testimony. We have a way that God has worked in our life. Sometimes it's just about something good God has done, something God has taught you. But our ultimate testimony is found in how we have been saved. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then there was a moment, there was a time in your life where you didn't know Jesus, where you were lost in your sin, where you weren't going to spend eternity with him, and you prayed and you accepted Christ as your Savior, you repented of your sins, you turned to Christ, and that story is called your testimony. And I honestly think your testimony is the best tool that you have to share the gospel with someone. You need to take them to Scripture, yes, You need to show them who God is, who Jesus is, what their sin is. Yes, but I think it can be really helpful to show someone how all of that took place in your life. So whenever someone comes to me and says, I don't think I know how to share the gospel with someone, I always ask them, well, how were you saved? Who in your life shared the gospel with you? Because that's always a good place to start. Yes, we always want to go to God's word, but your testimony, I think, is a great tool to help share the gospel with someone And as we read Acts 14, we see Paul in a couple different cities sharing his testimony, giving a report about what had happened in his life and about who Jesus actually is. And he calls himself and Barnabas witnesses, which really means to give a testimony or to give a report. Sometimes we can be worried about witnessing to others, sharing the gospel with them. Some people call it soul winning, which has an interesting connotation to it. But really, I think if you're a Christian, then you always have an avenue to share the gospel with someone and your testimony. You can be a witness of Jesus Christ. But as we're going to see today in Acts 14, that sometimes sharing your testimony, sometimes being a witness is harder than you might think it is. Sometimes there are situations and challenges that 
come up in your life that are difficult to overcome. We're going to see a couple different instances with Paul and Barnabas where they face some challenges as witnesses. Now, one of them I don't think will probably happen to any of us, and we'll get into that as we continue in Acts 14. But I think they give us some principles on how to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to see this morning, our main idea, our sermon idea is this. It's that God enables us to share our testimony despite difficult circumstances. My prayer for our church, my prayer for you, is that you're going to find people that you can share the gospel with. Is that God is going to put someone in your life, maybe they're easy to talk to, maybe they're not so easy to talk to. My prayer is that God will enable you to share the gospel with someone who does not know Christ. And there's going to be a moment when that happens where you think, I don't know what to do. You might be really afraid. There might be difficult circumstances that God puts into your life or into their lives. But it's God who is the one that is enabling us to share the gospel with others. And so how can you be a faithful witness this morning? Look at verses 1 through 7 with me as we first see a faithful witness testifies when opposed. A faithful witness testifies when opposed. And you could really say that's the theme of the whole chapter, but I think we especially see it in these first seven verses. So follow along with me as I read verse 1. It says, Now in Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So remember, they're going on this missionary journey, on their on Paul's first missionary journey, and they're kind of in the area of the Galatians or the region of Galatia. Schaefer, if you have that map, we can go ahead and pull it up on the screen. I passed out a paper map a couple weeks ago. You kind of see how when they go from Antioch, they stopped on the island of Cyprus, which we saw in Acts 13. It was Barnabas's hometown or home region. They shared the gospel in a couple of cities there. They then last week, we saw them go up into Pamphylia and share the gospel in Antioch, Poseidas. They kept going up, and now we're seeing them go to Iconium. We'll see them go to Lystra and Derby. So that just gives you a picture of where they are on the map. Those are the cities that Paul went to and shared the gospel with. And we see here that Paul enters into Iconium, and he goes back to a Jewish synagogue. Now, if you've been following along with us in the book of Acts, you're going to have a big question about this because at the end of Acts 13, the Jews are trying to stop the Gentiles from being saved. They're trying to spread false rumors about Paul and Barnabas. And so what does Paul do? He says, we're turning away from the Jews. We're turning towards the Gentiles. And so with that in mind, you're probably wondering, why does Paul go back to a Jewish synagogue? I thought Paul wasn't going to share the gospel with the Jews. Well, I want to say a couple of things about that. First of all, I think even though Paul is turning his focus towards the Gentiles, it doesn't mean Jews aren't going to get saved. We're going to see a lot of Jews get saved in the next couple chapters of Acts. Imagine if we had a missionary speaker come here and say that he was going to focus his attention on maybe a Jewish missions agency or maybe some kind of other kind of nationality in Brazil or in China. But he had a guy from France come and want to get saved. You think he would say, actually, I'm just focused on Chinese people. I'm not going to share the gospel with anybody from France. Well, no, he's going to share the gospel with them, right? But his focus is on that specific area. Paul's focus is on the Gentiles. The problem for Paul was where was he going to meet Gentiles? 
Where was he going to find Gentiles who he could meet? And really, he was going to find them in the synagogue. And I know that sounds strange, but there were Gentiles who had become Jewish, some proselytes who were attending the synagogue. And I really think Paul was going to the synagogue still to try to meet those Gentiles and lead them to the Lord. And that would give him other avenues of opportunity. And even though he said he's turning his focus towards the Gentiles, Paul still wanted to see Jewish people get saved. We saw that in Romans 9 during Thursday Bible study. Paul cared a lot for the Jewish people. Notice it says he spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So Jewish people and Gentile people are all being saved here in Iconium. He's having a really great ministry so far. Look at verse 2, though. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up, or could also say riled up, or caused an uprising in the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. So Paul is leading people to Christ. He's having Jews and Gentiles get saved. But there are Jewish people there that are causing an uprising. They're stirring people up. They are poisoning their minds. That's a pretty strong word that Luke is using here. Other translations might say afflicted or leading their souls to do evil. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want in all of scripture to be said that I poisoned someone's mind or I led them to do evil, right? And that's what these Jewish people were doing. Paul's going to later have a similar experience when he goes to Thessalonica in Acts 17. But notice this doesn't stop them. So already early in their ministry in Iconium, they face opposition, people spreading things about them, poisoning people's minds. Look at verse 3. It says, so they remained there for a long time. Now, we would expect that to say they were poisoning people's minds, so they went to the next city. No, actually, because they were causing this uprising, they decided to stay there longer. That doesn't mean that they're not going to move on eventually. They will. But notice just the resolve that Paul and Barnabas had. People who are poisoning others' minds against them. It says, so they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of grace by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So they stay there for a long period of time, and they're continuing to share the gospel. Notice who's doing the testifying now. It's actually God who is giving a testimony or a report. It says God is bearing witness of what they're doing. And how is he doing that? With signs and wonders. They were healing people. Demons were being cast out. Now, I don't think you can do those things today, but this is what happened in the book of Acts. You might ask, well, why, why can't we do those things today? Why did they do those things then? Well, notice they didn't have all of the New Testament. In fact, I don't really think they had any of the New Testament at this point. Um, there's so much that we have as Christians, believers in Jesus Christ today, because we have the completed Bible. They're also going into brand new areas that have never really heard of the gospel. So they needed some things that would confirm what they are doing. So God is helping them. He's having them do these signs and wonders. And this confirms to the people what is going on. Now notice verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. So they're causing really a division in this city. Some people sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. Now, a lot of people, if you read a commentary on this, they're going to make a big deal about why does it say the word apostle there? Was Barnabas really an apostle? There were only 12 apostles. Could Barnabas have been an apostle? 
And the answer is, I really don't know why it says apostles there. But what it's showing is Paul was an apostle. Yes, Barnabas was with Paul. That's one side. And the Jews were fighting against Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 5. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, verse 6, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region. So the Jewish people end up stirring things up enough that the Gentiles get involved and the Gentile rulers, the officials, maybe even the Romans got involved and they ran Paul and Barnabas out of the city. But notice it wasn't until they had been there for a long time. Eventually, there was a division great enough where Paul and Barnabas, for whatever reason, couldn't do ministry there any longer. And it's interesting. I think Paul and Barnabas were willing to die for what they believed in, yes. And there's plenty of Christians around the world who have given their lives for the gospel. But we also see here that when Paul and Barnabas figured out that they were going to be stoned, that they were trying to kill them, they decided they were going to go on and preach another day. Maybe that's the word you want to say. They went on to do more ministry. And so how did they know it was the right time to just move on and not stay there? I think the Spirit of God directed them and told them it was time to go. So they went on to Lystra and Derby, the cities of Lyconia, in the surrounding country, and they continued to preach the gospel. We start seeing Paul and Barnabas early in this chapter, and it's going to continue. They are preaching the gospel under pressure and under opposition. Now, I've not been as good about it in the last couple of weeks, but I've been trying in the new year to work out more and to do more physical exercise. And one of the things one of my friends told me, who's a power lifter, he lifts like 700 pounds or something like that. Um, I don't work out with him because I just don't want to compare myself to him at all. But he told me, he says, if it stops hurting, if you stop feeling the burn, you're probably not doing it right. Or you probably need to add more weight to it. So I'll try to lift weights in some form or fashion. And I'll think, okay, like it's finally starting to not hurt as much. And he'll say, you need to kick the weight up a little bit more. You need to have more resistance. A lot of people call it resistance training. And maybe that's why I haven't gone in the past couple of weeks. I don't know. But I'm probably going to have to start over and work my way back up whenever I do decide to go. In the same way, we should expect resistance in the Christian life. Not in the way that you lift weights necessarily, but Paul says in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, do I think that in Trafalgar, they're going to necessarily round us up and try to stone us? Well, I hope not, but I don't think that's necessarily going to happen in the way that Paul and Barnabas experienced persecution. There may be a day where that does happen. There may be a day where Christians in America give their lives for their faith. Regardless of when that comes, all of us can expect to face some kind of difficulty in the Christian life, some kind of opposition, some kind of pushback. And it may seem small here in America. In fact, it is relatively minor compared to what Christians experience around the world. But we should be ready to face opposition. God promises to be with us, to help us, to encourage us, but he doesn't promise us that it's going to be easy. He doesn't promise us that everything is going to work out exactly like we want. You may lose friends, family members, people that you know in your life who will not associate with you because you are a Christian. 
There will be a cost at some level to following Christ. I'm sure Paul, being a Pharisee, being very high up in the Jewish system, lost friends and family more than we could even imagine by becoming a Christian. So what kept him going? Why did he do this? Because he believed what he had seen. Because Paul's conversion was such a real experience and Christ transformed his life in such a way where Paul had to go share it with others. He had to go be a faithful witness of what God had done in his life. So the question for us is, how do we respond when we face opposition? I'm not saying you have to go get in social media wars or cause a controversy on Facebook. In fact, I would probably tell you not to do that. There's probably better ways to defend your faith rather than getting in all these arguments on Facebook. But you will face opposition for being a Christian. You will face some pushback. So what do you do when opposition comes? There's some people in life where they tend to cower away. They don't like opposition, so they tend to kind of hide or um, flee. Some people like to push through opposition. And they see opposition and it's a hurdle that they have to jump over. Despite what your personality is, when you face opposition in the Christian life, how do you respond? And then do you share your testimony with others? Do you share your testimony with those God has put in your life? Every time I pray for an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, oftentimes God gives me that opportunity, but sometimes I just don't see it. I think, man, God didn't give me anyone to share the gospel with this week. And then I think back on two or three conversations where I'm talking to an unsafe person. They've asked me, hey, are you a pastor? You know, what is that all about with Jesus and everything? And I had an opportunity right then to share the gospel, but maybe I'm not looking for it. Look with me at verse 8. We're going to secondly see that a faithful witness proclaims God and not man. Now, this is a really interesting part of Acts 14. Look at verse 8. Now in Lystra, remember this is the second city they go to, there's a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. So they run into a lame man, a man who couldn't walk, who couldn't get up. And he'd been this way since birth. Notice in verse 9 it says, He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright, on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. So as Paul and Barnabas are sharing the gospel with people, they run across this lame man. Now in a few moments, I want to talk about how interesting this situation is. Because if you remember all the way back to Acts 3, Peter and John go to the temple, and who do they see? They see a lame man. And there's a lot of similarities between those two stories. But as they see this man, this man is listening to Paul preaching. We don't know where he was exactly during this time. He could have been out in front. Remember, sometimes they brought lame people to Peter. They would bring them out on mats, just hoping that Peter's shadow would pass over them. We don't know if it was something like that or if he's just in the background. But Paul, for some reason, pays attention to him and just starts staring at him. Now, if you've ever had somebody just kind of looking at you for no reason, it kind of makes you a little bit self-conscious. But it says Paul was intently staring at this person. And why was he doing this? He says, it says, seeing that he had faith to be made well. I don't think this means that this man was necessarily a Christian. This man believed that Paul had the power 
to heal him, to give him the ability to walk. Now, how did Paul look at this person and know that he had the faith to be made well? I have no idea. But Paul knew, I think, based upon the Spirit's leading in his life, he knew that this person had faith enough to be made well. And so Paul just says in a loud voice, stand up. And as he says that, you can imagine all these people are looking around, wondering, who is Paul talking about? And it was this lame man. And he says, stand up on your feet. And immediately this man stands up. And in fact, it says he leaps up. And where have we seen that before? Just like Acts 3, when Peter tells that lame man to rise up, he jumps up. And in fact, he's just jumping around and leaping around. He not only had the ability to walk, he had the ability to leap and jump and just do things that were unimaginable for someone who was lame. And in the same way, this person springs up. Now, we don't have a lot of information about this lame man, not nearly as much as we had in Acts 3. But I do think it's interesting. In last week's sermon, we saw Paul preaching the gospel to Jewish people and Gentiles as well. But it's very similar to the sermon that Peter gave in Acts 2 at Pentecost. There's a lot. Of, they even use the same scripture in different places. And now, just like in Acts 3, Paul is helping someone walk again, a lame person, just like Peter did. It's interesting just to see the comparisons. We won't make too much of it. Look at verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now what happens next, Paul and Barnabas, I don't think were ever expecting. And they couldn't understand it at first either because these people are speaking in Lyconian. The common language at that point was Greek. I think that's what Paul and Barnabas were speaking as they're sharing the gospel. I actually don't think they understood what was being said here when they said this in Lyconian. But the people from Lystra said that Paul and Barnabas were gods, were Greek gods that had come down to the earth. Now imagine if you were sharing the gospel with someone at McDonald's and all of a sudden they said you were a god or you were some kind of higher power. I mean, I don't know if any of us, at least here in our context in Trafalgar, are going to experience something like this. But notice, they keep going. It says in verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. I don't know how many of you know anything about Greek mythology, but they had Greek gods that they believed in. Zeus was the god of lightning. He was the most powerful god and they called Barnabas Zeus, which I think is interesting. You'd think they would call Paul Zeus because Paul is the one that everybody focuses on. But this points, at least to me, that Barnabas still had a little bit of leadership in some way. Or maybe because he was quiet, they thought he was the one in charge. Then they called Paul Hermes because Hermes was the chief speaker of the Greek gods. So they mistake them for Greek gods. And you might think, why would they call them Zeus and Hermes? Well, there was a myth in the city of Lystra that Zeus and Hermes would come down and they would look like men, normal men, and they would ask to stay with people. They would go to people's house and say, hey, can we stay here for the time being? And there's one myth that says they did that in the city of Lystra. They went over to all these different houses and no one would let them stay with them it, until they got to an older couple's house. They stayed with them. And then Zeus, Zeus and Hermes flooded the entire area because no one would let them stay there. 
And so these people are thinking, hey, if this is really Greek gods that are here in human form, we had better be nice to them because we don't want to have a massive flood that wipes everything out. And so as they recognize that these two people, or at least they think they're Greek gods because Paul spoke in a loud voice that was something that was common for gods, at least in their mythology, they thought they would speak in a loud voice. And then he also performed a miracle. Notice verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices in the crowds or with the crowds. So Paul and Barnabas, again, they don't know. I don't think they realize at this point what these people are saying. But all of a sudden they see these people chanting something that they don't understand and bringing out oxen or somebody says or some translations might say bulls. They're bringing them through the city to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Now, this is where it's starting to get pretty strange. And Paul and Barnabas immediately realize they think that we are actually gods. They don't realize what we are trying to say. And so look at how Paul and Barnabas react. These people want to make sacrifices to them because they think they're Greek gods. And in verse 14, it says, And but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out. So when they hear about this, they immediately tear their clothes, which was a sign of Jewish mourning, of just being in anguish or disgust. And why is that? They think that Paul and Barnabas are really God. They don't recognize that Paul and Barnabas are really trying to show them who God was. And notice what they say in verse 15. They say, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, We bring you good news that you should turn from vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they start asking them, hey, why are you guys doing this? Why do you think that we are gods, that we have higher power? They're trying to show them we are just like you. We have flesh. We are human. We're mortal. None of this power comes from us. And notice they immediately divert their attention to God. It says, we're trying to give you the gospel. That's that word that is used there, euangelion. It's the good news about how you should turn from vain things. So that means things that aren't alive, wooden things. A lot of the idols were made out of wood or stone. Things that weren't alive. How you should turn from these things that aren't alive to the living God. Zeus and Hermes and all the other great gods, even though they're great stories, they didn't do anything. They weren't real. And Paul is showing them, hey, there is a real and living God. It's not us, but it is God who made the heaven and the earth. And so that's what he's going to show them. He who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This God, this creator actually made us and made heaven and earth and everything you see in the sea and everything that is in the sea as well. He is the one that truly has the power. And what they're trying to show is all power comes from him. I know someone who's a Christian counselor who, as he shares the gospel with someone, as he tries to just give them some foundational things about God, his first statement is this, is that there is a God and it is not you. You might think, well, no, I don't believe that I'm a God. 
Well, maybe you wouldn't say that, but a lot of times we can go around acting like the whole world revolves around us, like everything is about us. He'll say, there is a God and it's not you. And then he'll say, there is a problem and that is you. And what's our problem? That we're sinful. So we're not God, but actually we are the problem because we've sinned. And that's what Paul is trying to show here is that, hey, there is a God who has the power to do these things, but this God is not us. And he's going to continue explaining. He says in verse 16, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. I think this is so interesting. And why is that? We often think, why did God choose Israel? Why did Israel become God's chosen people? What about the other nations? Does God not care about them? No, God allowed the other nations to go in their own way. He didn't make them do that. He allowed them to go in their own sinful ways. He's saying in past generations, God let these nations that weren't Israel, these Gentile nations, live in their own sinful ways that led to their destruction. And you might think, well, that's kind of harsh. Why didn't God share who he was with them like he did with Israel? Well, notice what he did for them. It says after that, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. God could have let these Gentile nations go to their destruction, but notice what he did. It says he did good. God did good. Even the people who don't know him, who have no idea who God is, who weren't Israel. God didn't save them from Egypt. God didn't have a covenant promise with them. Yet it says God did good. Well, how did he do good? It says he gave them rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. A lot of times in these conversations, we think, is God fair? Is God fair to people, even people who don't know him? Actually, what would be fair is for God to give us no blessings. It'd be for God to say, hey, guess what? When you sin, you're zapped and you go and spend eternity in hell. But actually, God's goodness is in the fact that he created us, that he lets us live, that he gives us food to eat. That he gives us clothes on our back. That he gives us rain, water, all the things that we need. You realize that if it weren't for God's goodness this morning, you could not be sitting here. In Colossians 1, it says in Christ, all things consist. That if it wasn't for God, all the atoms and things that make you up would just burst and go crazy. That, that we're dust. That if it were not for God, we would just go back to dust. And so when we start talking about God's justice, why didn't God choose these other nations? Why did God focus on Israel? No, God is good to all people. There's no one in life who gets a bad rap. There's people in life, yes, that have struggles, that have hardships, but God has been good to all. Because what we really deserve is none of that. God could just say, hey, guess what? You're done. One strike and you're out. And yet God shows his goodness. And that's what he's trying to show these people. That actually God did reveal himself. And it was in how he was good 
towards them. And notice that phrase that he uses at the beginning of verse 16. It says in past generations. What does that mean? Before Christ. Before Christ, the Gentiles did not have access to God like the Jewish people did. But now in Christ, they're being brought in. They have access to the gospel. That doesn't mean all of them will get saved. That does mean that they have access to the gospel message. And again, I've said this a lot in the book of Acts. If the Gentiles never got the gospel, none of us would be saved. It's how we ended up getting the gospel as Gentiles here, even in America. Look at verse 18. So Paul's giving them this explanation of who God is, his power, his goodness, how he reveals himself. And in verse 18, it says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. So Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, 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 don't offer sacrifices to us. And the people are looking at them and thinking, ah, I guess we won't offer sacrifices to you. But they're still not quite convinced. They still want to treat them like these Greek gods. Now, what's the point of all of this? Am I trying to say that you and I are going to have people when we share the gospel with them offer sacrifices to us and bring out a bowl and make sacrifices to God? Well, I hope not. I don't think that's going to happen, especially here in Trafalgar. But there are some times, even when we share the gospel, even when we try to do good, where people can start to think that it's all about us. What do I mean by that? There's pastors out there who try to make a brand for themselves, a name for themselves. All the attention goes towards them. And they would say, yes, all the glory to God. But they have large book deals and all these different things that point to how great they are. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a big church. That's not my point. But my point is, is that sometimes even in ministry, even as a Christian, you can get so consumed with the following and who people say you are and how wonderful they say you are that you lose sight of who God is. You might wonder, how do all these mega church pastors fall from ministry? How could someone with a church so big have an affair, be watching pornography, have all these sins in their life that are covered up? And sometimes I think, that the fame, the publicity, everything that people say about these guys gets so caught up in their head that they lose track of why they're doing ministry in the first place. And that may not happen to us. There may not be people here who have a large church ministry. But sometimes even when we do good, when we serve others, we can get wrapped up in people saying thank you. Telling us how good we are. I can remember as a kid when I was starting to preach when I was a teenager, I never knew what to do when people would say, hey, thank you for your sermon. I'd always get really awkward about it because I'd think, well, I'm actually not supposed to make it about me. It's supposed to be about the Lord, you know, so I'd kind of get really. And so now I just say thank you. And I hopefully try to point them to the fact that it's God's word that I'm trying to preach. We need to remember that ministry, the things that we do, the good things that we do, are not about us. They're about God. I always had, I was, as I was thinking about this and just getting mixed up and having people think you're someone you're not, I remembered a story from when I was in college. So I've always thought I've had a pretty unique name, being named Lance. 
And I've not met too many people who have the same name as I do. And so I went to college and the dean of students was named Lance, Lance Augsburger. And I can remember we'd make jokes. Somebody would talk about Dean Lance and they'd joke, oh yeah, that's Lance Lewis. You know, and everybody knew I wasn't the dean of students. I looked 12 when I went to college. So no one thought I was the dean of students, okay? Except for this one family who came and visited the college with their son. And I went up and introduced myself and I said, hey, I'm Lance. It's nice to meet you. And the mom started giving me this funny look. And, you know, I shook their hands and started talking to them. And finally, I think the dad came up to me and he said, aren't you a little young to be the dean of students at the college? And I said, oh, actually, and I thought for a second, I'm like, I could really play this up and get a lot of, <laughs> get, get in a lot of trouble and say a lot of things that aren't true. But I eventually said, no, 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 I'm, I'm just a student. Dean Lance is somewhere else. And you could see the relief on their face. They're like, okay, good. We're happy this guy's not the dean of students, right? Sometimes we can get so focused on everything's actually going towards us. People are so happy with how we're doing and they're so thankful for what we've done that we lose sight of the fact that all the glory, everything goes to the Lord. Again, I'm not saying that anybody's going to offer sacrifices to you, but I love what Paul and Barnabas do. They tear their clothes. They are brokenhearted because someone wants to give them the credit more than the Lord. Let's finally see in these last few verses, we've seen that a faithful witness testifies when opposed a faithful witness proclaims God and not man. And then lastly, a faithful witness keeps going when afflicted. We're going to see a pretty dramatic turn of events. Look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and Barnabas and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now this is fascinating to me. First of all, the persistence of the Jewish people. They came from other towns, from Antioch, from Iconium. They followed Paul and Barnabas just to stop them from sharing the gospel. I really love petty people. Have you ever met someone who just really makes a big deal about nothing? And just the pettiness, you're like, wow, that's really nothing you should be worried about. These Jewish people followed them from other towns, hundreds of miles even, to try to stop them from sharing the gospel. And so they get to this town and notice how quickly the crowds turn. It says, having persuaded the crowds who were just about to worship Paul and Barnabas, they were just about to offer sacrifices to them. Now they are ready to stone them. You know, there's a lot of similarities to our just culture today. We can be so quick to put someone on a pedestal and then in the next moment, we're ready to stone them and we're ready to just say how terrible they are. And it's a good lesson, again, to not be focused on the praise of men because humans are really just fickle creatures. I had a student that I saw a few months ago that I used to teach. And she told me, she said, oh, Mr. Lewis, we miss you at school. We wish you were back. You know, you were so great. And I thought that's interesting because when I was there, all you ever did was complain about me, you know. And so I guarantee if I ever came back, you would just start complaining about me again until I left. It's just a good reminder that men's hearts are fickle. And so they're ready to stone Paul and Barnabas. And in fact, they didn't attempt to. They didn't almost stone Paul they actually did. It says they stoned Paul. Now, I don't know what Barnabas was doing during this time. 
I don't know if he got out of this somehow or because Paul was speaking, they just focused on him, but they didn't stone Barnabas, at least from what we see. They stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, the biggest question is, was Paul actually dead? And it's an interesting question. I'm not going to go into too much detail about it now. There is a passage, I think in 2 Corinthians, that talks about when Paul went to the third heaven and he sees heaven and then he does come back. This may have coincided with that. It may not have. I'm not going to make a big deal about that. I will say this. It says supposing he was dead. So at least he looked dead. He was severely injured, obviously. But whether he was dead or not, I'm not sure. I would doubt that he was I doubt that he was all the way dead just based on what the passage says. But he was pretty beaten up. The fact that he survived being stoned was pretty remarkable. Look at verse 20. When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city on the next day and went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So why did they gather in a circle? Is this some kind of like resurrection type thing? Well, no. I think the disciples, the people who were Christians went to go check and see if Paul was dead. And when they got there, it says he got up and kept going. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was stoned, not just attempted to be stoned, but if someone was actually stoning me, throwing rocks at me, I don't think I'd be able to just get up and keep going. That's exactly what Paul did. I mean, it seems like it's no big deal. They thought Paul was dead. They thought he wasn't alive anymore. In fact, the disciples are going to see did they actually kill Paul? And Paul says, oh, I'm fine. Let's just keep going. And, and they just go on preaching like it's nothing. That's what's amazing about just the resolve that Paul and Barnabas have to continue to preach the gospel. I'm not saying you're going to be stoned. In fact, I hope you're not stoned by people. But notice just the resolve they have, how tough that would be to keep being faithful in ministry. Even after that happens. It says they went on with Barnabas to Derby. Look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So they finally got a break. They go to Derby and it goes well. They didn't have anything strange happen. There was at least nothing to report. People got saved and they started going back. Now notice, I think this is really interesting They go back to the cities they've already been in. They go to Lystra. They go to Iconium. And why did they do that? Look at verse 22. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So they go back to these cities. And not only do they go back, they go back to places where they almost died. I don't know about you, maybe you've been in an accident and you're a little bit just funny to go back to the spot where you had that accident. You know, I didn't go to Culver's for a while after somebody hit my car, but Paul is going back to Lystra where they stoned him almost to death. And yet, why did he go? He went to encourage the Christians who were there. And I think this is so important. There's so many people who I think have good intentions who may even really share the gospel with someone and people may be saved, but they never follow up. They never go and check on them. They never disciple them, help them grow as Christians. Paul and Barnabas thought this was important. 
In fact, they thought it was so important that they went back to these cities. And it said that they were strengthening their souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith. They were teaching them. They were discipling them. They were building them up. They were helping them grow in their Christian lives. And notice what it says, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Obviously, I think you are, the kingdom of God is still to come. There will be a thousand year reign of Christ here on earth. If you're a Christian, you will be part of that. So it's not a works-based salvation. But I think what Paul is showing is that, hey, the Christian life is going to have many different trials, tribulations, things that are hard. Well, how did Paul know that? Well, he could just show him his scars that he had because he was just almost stoned to death. And Paul thinks it's important enough to go back and encourage them. In my short time just observing church culture, I've seen that there's churches that are really good at evangelism, reaching out, sharing the gospel with others, with other Christians, and sometimes they're not as great at discipleship, encouraging them, helping them grow in their faith, helping them walk with Christ. Some churches are really good at discipleship, helping believers grow, become Christians, but they're not as good at evangelism. What Paul does here is he says, you know what, we're going to go back, we're going to encourage these different churches that have been established And then notice verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they go back to each church and they help them grow to the point where they have leadership. We said this several months ago when we were talking about elders. I think elder, pastor, bishop is the same office. An elder is a pastor. But it's church leadership. They don't control everything, but they help lead the church to follow Christ. And Paul and Barnabas worked with these churches so that they were to the point where they could have their own church leadership. I think this took some time. I think this took Paul and Barnabas quite a bit of time to help establish these churches to have their own leadership there. And I think it's a great model for us to follow today. That as people plant churches in America and around the world, that they shouldn't just move on or leave the church without good local leadership there. That they should be encouraging and discipling others. We're going to see later in Acts 15, at the end of Acts 15, when they go on their second missionary journey, it starts out as they want to encourage the churches they've already been to. Again, just such a discipleship focus that they had. Now look at verse 24. They passed through Poseida and came to Pamphylia. So now they're going backwards. They're going to end up back in Antioch where they started. And when they had spoken the word in Persia and then went down to Attilia and from there sailed to Antioch. So they hit some of these towns they've been in. Attilia was not a town they had actually been to on their first missionary journey, but they still went there and preached the gospel to them. It was a harbor city. It was the capital of the Roman province there. So they preached the gospel. They saw people saved there. And then they went back to Antioch, which is big Antioch, where they had started out. Some of these cities have the same name, so it gets confusing. They go all the way back to Antioch, where we saw them leave in Acts 13. 
And notice what it says. It says, when they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. So these believers encourage them. I don't think they're trying to puff them up, but they are encouraging them as they have come back. And they're giving almost like a missions update. You know, we have a missionary come and share what they've done. They're giving almost a missions update here. It says, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared what God had done with them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It's so interesting. We see Paul and Barnabas, how they're sharing the gospel with others. People are getting saved. But what it shows here is even how God is over all of this. He's the one opening the door. He's the one telling them it's time to go and move on to different places. So they're sharing the gospel with others. It says, and they remained no little time with the disciples. How long were they there? I think probably six months to a year because then eventually they're going to have to go back to Jerusalem. We see Paul and Barnabas as faithful witnesses even when they are afflicted, even when they're stoned, when people oppress them, they keep going. If you know me, you know that I'm a football guy. I love watching football. I was listening to Joe Montana give an interview. He was a football quarterback for the 49ers, and he said in the Super Bowl he really wanted to get tackled, like he really wanted to get hit early in the game. You might ask, well, why would he want that? Because he said, once I get hit and I get pushed down, and I get back up, I'm in the right mindset to help me relax and get through the rest of the game. But he's like, I have to know that I'm going to get hit and that I'm going to get back up and it's not going to be my last hit. Now, I didn't play football. I don't really have that mindset. I think if I got hit in football, I would just stay down, you know, and I might like crawl over to the sideline or something. It's a good encouragement for us that in the Christian life, sometimes you're going to face opposition You're going to face people who push you down, who oppose what you're doing. This didn't stop Paul and Barnabas. They kept going. They kept faithfully sharing the gospel, what God had done in their lives. And this should be an encouragement to us. So as we close this morning, I've got three questions for us to consider. First of all, are you faithfully sharing the gospel Are you faithfully sharing the gospel? I think it starts with prayer. Do you pray consistently for opportunities to share the gospel with others? When you pray every day, do you pray, God, give me someone in my life who needs the gospel, who I can share the gospel with? It might be a family member. It might be a friend co-worker, someone you've known your whole life, someone you've not even met yet. But God, would you put someone in my life that I can share the gospel with? And I try not to speak for God, at least in ways that he doesn't say in his word. But if you pray that, you'll start seeing God put people in your life, directing you towards those who need the gospel. Are you faithful to share the gospel with those people? When God puts them in your life, do you say, ah, I don't know what to say. They probably wouldn't listen to me anyways. Are you faithful to share the gospel with them? I know people, people who have been saved, who for years people were afraid to share the gospel with because they thought, oh, that person would never get saved. And that person's just been waiting for someone to share the gospel with them. 
Are you faithfully sharing the gospel? Secondly, do you intentionally direct focus on the Lord? Church people can be so encouraging. They can be very gratuitous or they can give a lot of thanks for things you do. And sometimes it can be nice to hear the word thank you, right? Or to know that you're doing a good job. But do you direct the focus to the Lord? He's the one who made everything. He's the one who gives everyone power to share the gospel, to preach, to sing, to do anything. All of our gifts and our talents come from God. Do you direct the focus towards God, showing that he's the one who's great and it's not about us? Sometimes ministry is really exciting, sharing the gospel with people, preaching Whatever it is God has called you to do, it can be exciting sometimes. And then sometimes it can be normal. It can be monotonous even. But it's God who's the one who's building his church, who is at work. And we can't let the focus come to ourselves. And then thirdly, do you keep going after affliction? Whether it's from others, whether it's just personal suffering God has put in your life you keep sharing the gospel with others. As we read about Paul here in Acts 14, when he says in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, when God helps him to keep going, it makes a lot more sense. Paul talks about his sufferings later in 2 Timothy 3. He talks about how he faced sufferings, and he mentions these cities specifically in Iconium and Lystra and in Derbe, and that is when he says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Paul's looking back on this time and he's saying, I have faced suffering. He faced hard times. He faced trials. In fact, in that book, in 2 Timothy, he says, yeah, everybody besides you, Timothy, who I thought was my friend, they abandoned me. They're not helping me anymore. He's at a very lonely point in his life. Do you keep going when afflicted, when you face challenges, when you face suffering? It's not to say that they're not real, that they're not hard. But unfortunately, sometimes when we face those challenges, we have a tendency to turn inward, to focus on us, to not reach out, to not give to others, to not help others. We can focus so much on ourselves. Do we have the faith in God? Do we have the trust in his word, the dependence on him to say when life gets hard, when I face challenges, I'm going to depend on him. And I'm going to keep going. My prayer for us is that God would continue to put people in our lives that we can share the gospel with. And sometimes those situations won't be easy. But by God's grace and with his help, we can be faithful to share the gospel with those who he's called us to be witnesses to. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we need your help to do this. We know that we're weak. We know that we're fickle people. The same sinful heart that caused those Gentiles to reject Paul and Barnabas and think that they were gods and then stone them. That same fickleness is the same fickle heart that each and every one of us had before we knew you and your grace. God, we thank you for your gospel. If we're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's because you've saved us. It's because you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have a relationship with you. 
we ask that we would be willing servants this morning, Lord, to share your gospel with those around us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.